following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, Helen Keller was born in June 27, 1880, a beautiful and healthy child. But at 19 months old, she became ill with scarlet fever. And as a result, she completely lost both her ability to see and to hear. And despite her bleak condition, Helen's parents loved her very much, and they would not give up on her. And they were desperate to give her a full and a meaningful life. And so they immediately contacted the Perkins School of the Blind, who put Helen in touch with a gifted teacher named Ann Sullivan. Anne tried to communicate with Helen by using finger spelling. She would write on the palm of her hand just like this, as she often did with so many of her blind students, but with no success. Helen often displayed behavioral problems, and they would often get frustrated with one another, and, and nothing seemed to work. Nothing changed. Now, for the parents in the room, you know trying to communicate with their children is hard enough, right? But imagine trying to do that with a child that is both blind and deaf. Youth group kids, you know how hard it is to communicate with your parents, right? It's hard. Adults don't make any sense sometimes. Now close your eyes and and cover your ears and imagine that this is the world that you live in now. This is your life. It's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? But one day, Ann Sullivan had this brilliant idea that changed everything. She took Helen outside to a water pump, and she pumped cold water over her hands. And with the other hand, she spelled out the letters to water in the other while the, while the cold water was pumped on the other hand. And in that moment, Helen was able to finally make the connection that the water that she was feeling on one hand was directly tied to the word her teacher, Anne, was trying to communicate on her other hand. And by the end of that first day, Helen had learned 30 new words. And from then, her learning just took off. By age 16, or by age 10, Helen had mastered uh, reading in Braille, and she had also mastered using the typewriter. By age 16, she had polished her speaking skills enough to attend preparatory school. By age 24, though deaf and blind, she graduated from Radcliffe College with honors. Youth group kids. (laughs) There's really no excuse to not graduate with honors. (laughs) Thanks to Ann Sullivan, Helen Keller would grow up to become a champion, not just for the blind, but for all handicapped. You see, during that time, everyone put all of those who were disabled into this little box, a small box which dictated all the things that they thought that they could and they couldn't do, mostly couldn't do, right? But Helen Keller came along, and she blew up that box. She took down all the stigmas and all the stereotypes of an entire class of people when no one thought they could be of any real use to society. You know, and as we approach Christmas and continue in this Advent series called God Made Visible, I think Helen Keller's life is more than just an inspirational story. I think it's a powerful picture 
of both our condition and our cure. You know, we may not share Helen Keller's physical shortcomings, but we are more like Helen Keller than we think. You know, as Pastor Steve shared last week, the Bible is filled with the language of relationship because God created us to be in relationship with him. And the Bible tells us that there once was a time when we as mankind did in fact share a unique and a perfect fellowship with God. Everything was as it should be and nothing came between God as our creator and we as his beloved creation. But the Bible also tells us that when Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, that perfect relationship was broken and we broke it. And all of us since has inherited that same sin nature which has separated us from God. And we prove it every day by the way that we sin. And just as Helen Keller was struck with a disease that robbed her of her ability to see and to hear because of sin, we too have lost our ability to see God and to hear his voice. And the Bible says we are all like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But here's the good news. God has not given up on us. He has done and he is doing everything in his power to restore us and to make us whole. But how would God communicate with his beloved? How would he convey his heart and his character to children who are deaf and blind to him? How can we see him and know him? Not from our own sinful or misguided perceptions, but for who he truly is. You know, today's text comes from the book of Hebrews, and just as the name suggests, this book was written to Jews. And to be more exact, primarily Christian Jews. And like so many other epistles, these particular people had endured much persecution because of their decision to follow Jesus. They were ostracized from their families and friends. They were isolated from really the only life that they ever knew, which centered around all these rich traditions of the Jewish faith, the temple worship, the sacred ceremonies, the many feasts and the religious holidays. These weren't just things that they grew up with. This was a part of their identity. And their whole lives they believed that they were a special people, chosen by God. And their faith and their religious practices were the only way to connect to the one and true living God. You know, for those of us who have grown up as children of immigrants, maybe we can relate a little bit to the sacrifice that is displayed here. These people gave up everything that they called home, but not in hope of a better life in a different country, but in hope of a heavenly home after this life. You know, things were very difficult for them, and And so you can see why there might be this incredible temptation to fall back and to return to their old beliefs and their old ways. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And this is why he opens with these words. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You know, there's much debate to this day about the author of this book, Hebrews. It's interesting to me that among all the books of the Bible, the authorship of this one is probably the most hotly debated. But I think this is by God's design. There's arguably no book that gives us a more majestic view of Christ than this one. Jesus is front and center in this book. He's the central focus. He's the shining star. And it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is saying, it, it doesn't matter who I inspired to write this. What matters is the singular inspiration of this book. It's my son, Jesus. And before we unpack the text here, I think it's necessary to put ourselves in a Jewish frame of mind because this book was clearly written to a Jewish audience. And so to do that, I'm going to at least, as best as I can in the next five minutes or so, walk you through how the Jewish people understood and related to God. It's, it's going to be a little bit of an Old Testament refresher. And I think this will help bring greater insight into this passage. Uh, so in the opening verses of this book, the writer immediately references all of the traditions and the religious practices that any God-fearing Jew would have been very familiar with. Right? Prophets and priests, sin and sacrifice, angels and throne rooms. This was God language to the Jews. These were the ways that they related to and that they saw God. He was shrouded in mystery. He was respected with reverence. And I think one small example of this that we still see today is found in how many Jews still refuse to write out God's name in fear that they would be taking it in vain or somehow disrespecting it. Right? And so they spell it as G-D in the English language, right? I took this from Judaism 101 website. It still happens today. And that's just a glimpse, I think, of the reverence the Jewish people have towards God. And I think the Israelites' reaction upon receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 summarizes their view of God so well. You know, immediately after they encounter God, they cry out to Moses and they say, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And it goes on to read, The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. 
Now, the Israelites were not a particularly bright people, but they were smart enough to know that they needed a mediator to come between them and God. And at Mount Sinai, they were very aware that they were a sinful people, and they fell short of God's glory. This is what Paul speaks of when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 13 chapters later, in Exodus 33, God makes this very clear even to Moses when he requests to see God's glory. God tells him, no one may see me and live. The one true God was a holy God, and nothing unholy could see him or enter into the glory of his presence. And not long after this, in Exodus later, in the book of Leviticus, God gives Moses instructions. It's a detailed set of laws and rituals describing how God's people were to relate to him. And this was necessary because sin had separated mankind from a holy God. And because of this, prophets and priests, they became necessary. They served as mediators between God and man. The prophets brought God's message to men and the priests brought man's problems to God. So while sin created separation from a holy God, these laws and these mediators were God's first steps in reaching down and closing that gap between the creator and his creation. Because they could not enter into God's presence, they needed mediators to be their voice. They needed mediators to hear his voice. They were deaf. They were blind. I think if there's one indelible picture of God's presence in the Old Testament, it's found in the Ark of the Covenant. You know, when you read the detailed pictures for creating this Ark in Exodus 25, it's really not that impressive in size. It's basically a box that's made of acacia wood. And it's about four feet long. It's about two feet high and about two feet wide. But it was forbidden for anyone to touch the ark. And so it didn't have any handles. It had these rings by which it could be lifted with poles that were inserted into the rings. And the reason why you couldn't touch it was obvious because it represented God's holy presence. And on the very top of this ark was a lid And this lid had a name. It was called the mercy seat. And it was made of pure gold with two cherubim, these winged angelic creatures that were on top. So what what was the place? What was the purpose of this ark? Leviticus 16 tells us the ark was placed inside the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle and later the temple. This area was called the Holy of Holies. To your far left there. This room was separated by a large curtain which served as a veil. And God set aside one day a year, the Day of Atonement, or what Jews refer today as Yom Kippur, in which the high priest was allowed to enter, but only after offering up a bull and goat as a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people. And Here's the strange thing in this ceremony. The priest would take the blood of the bull and the goat and sprinkle it on this beautiful 
gold Ark of the Covenant. Right on top. Right on that mercy seat. It's a strange ritual, isn't it? That God would acquire this as a means by which we would approach him. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, during the reign of King David, the Israelites had recaptured the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines. And there is this big celebration as they're bringing it back to Jerusalem. And we're told that as they are bringing it back, in the midst of their joy, the oxen stumbles and the cart tips. And a man named Uzzah, who was one of those charged with transporting the ark, he grabs it and he tries to save it from falling on the ground. And he's immediately struck down. You know, I remember as a child hearing that story and it, it bothered me. You know, why would this man have to die just because he touched it, especially if he was trying to save it? And, you know, it bothered King David too, so much that for some time he refused to bring it back to Jerusalem. But notice when the ark was about to fall off the cart and Uzzah touched it, the ark was not destroyed. But Uzzah was. And this was something that the Israelites, in the midst of their celebration, had forgotten. God's holiness and man's sin can never come into contact with one another. And that is a universal truth that can never be compromised. And in one instant, they saw what happens when it did. It's a very visual reminder that sinful beings are vaporized when they come into contact with the awesome holiness of God, consumed in an instant. This little box, this gold box, didn't just represent God's presence. In many ways to the Jews, it represented God himself. You know, I grew up with three sisters, and I, I'm the second oldest of four children, and um, all of us kind of grew up scared of our dad. The, it's the four of us here. I'm, like I said, I had really bad vision. I was wearing glasses even at the age of six there. <laughs> and... Um, that's my dad holding uh, my older sister on the right there. Um, you know, we were scared of our dad, but, he, you know, he would, honest, he listens to these recordings, by the way, so, Dad, I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> he was not a mean man. He never laid hands on us. But to be honest, it was hard to relate to him growing up. And there was a generational gap. There was a cultural divide. There was a language barrier. And we just didn't interact a lot growing up. He's a very typical, I guess, first-generation Korean dad. And every day, I remember, he'd pick us up from school, and he would often, when we got home, just walk straight down to the basement, and he would sit on this very large desk that faced the wall, and he would study the Bible, and he would read his medical journals and textbooks. And I remember, you know, when the four of us kids wanted to play outside, none of us wanted to ask my dad for permission. It was a very frightening prop proposition, right? We were all scared. And so what did we do? We would always force the youngest in the family, my sister Esther, <laughs> to go downstairs, you know, and represent us as our mediator. <laughs> and we would watch her, you know, make that long journey down the stairs, and we would kind of wait at the top of the stairs. We'd kind of hold our breath. She made our, her request. And, you know, 99% of the time, he always said yes. So I don't know what we were so scared about, but we always made her do it. 
And I remember one day my dad asked her, like, why do they always send you to ask me to go outside? <laughs> and I think in our minds, we thought, you know, she's the youngest, she's the cutest, he can't say no to her. And if he does and she dies, that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think that's the way we often view God, though. Even with the gospel in hand and the New Testament revelation, we are hesitant to approach God. We're unsure if he will receive us with grace and with favor. And this was the Jewish perception of God. He was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was separated from the people by a curtain and mediated by through a high priest. He was the one who designed these strange rituals involving gold and blood and goats and bulls and smoke and sacrifice. And you can understand on some level why God was such a mystery to them and why they related to him with such reverential awe. And I think if we're honest, this is the way we view God too sometimes. Distant, unapproachable, relatable, maybe, but only on his own terms. And this is the world that Jesus himself enters, a world in which God through a nation was telling the world the terms by which he could be approached. A world which created the Pharisees, a people who obeyed a strict moral code of 613 laws by which they were to keep themselves pure. And they actually thought that they could do it. (coughs) They had put God in a box and they had convinced themselves that the way to win God's favor was to strictly obey his commands and to follow his prescribed rituals. And it's here that the author of Hebrews, from his opening lines, he lifts up the curtain and he shines the spotlight on Jesus. And he unveils what God's great plan was all along. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Notice the contrast in these opening verses. Long ago versus these last days. There's a contrast in age, right? To our fathers, but now to us, there's a contrast in the audience. By the prophets, now by his son. There's a contrast in even the agent. And look, just like in graphic design, you want to use contrast, right, to, to highlight a subject, to make it stand out, right, to be more noticeable. And in the same way, the writer here is uplifting the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, against the backdrop of past ages and past prophets. And he's saying this was God's plan all along. whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, to the Jew who understood that God created the world just by speaking it into existence, right? Genesis 1.1, God said, let there be light. Boom, there was light. And here's the shocker. Jesus was the agent by which God actually created the world from the very beginning. And not only that, Jesus is the one who is literally sustaining that same universe that he created. He's sustaining it today by his word, by that same power. All the planets, all the orbits sustained just by the word of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The writer is stating that Jesus, unlike Moses, is not just the representative who comes into the presence of God's glory. He says Jesus actually is the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of his nature. The God who is spirit and invisible has now made himself visible. And he has done it through his son, who is the same in substance as the Father, and is his exact equal in power and glory. And going on in verse 3, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now again, if you're a first century Jew, you'd know exactly what was being spoken of here, right? The purification was referring to the Day of Atonement. And this is eye-opening. Jesus is not just the mediator and the great high priest, but Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 10, later on in this book, the writer says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, right? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see these these earthly sacrifices that these priests carried out. They had to be done every year, year after year, through the great high priest, on the Day of Atonement. And now it was completed by Jesus, and it was done once and for all. His blood was so sufficient and his work so complete that Jesus could sit down and rest. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You sit down when you're done with your work. There were no seats inside the temple or the tabernacle, nowhere for the priests to ever sit down because they were constantly at work, constantly mediating between a holy God and a sinful people because no sacrifice could allow them to find redemption forever until Jesus. And now the blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant begins to make more sense, doesn't it? Especially when you realize what was inside the Ark. Do you know what was inside the Ark? It was the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And you see, the blood was poured on top of that beautiful gold box for a reason. It signified that Jesus' blood would once and for all not just cover, but completely atone for, breaking a perfect law from a perfect God. God no longer looked down from above the ark and saw his broken commandments. He looked down And he saw the blood of his son. And this is why in the gospel accounts we are told that when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, at that exact moment, the curtain in the temple dividing the Holy of Holies was literally torn in two. Now this wasn't like some cheap shower curtain, right? This was a curtain that was 60 feet high, four inches thick, And God tore that curtain like wet paper as a dramatic sign that now we can enter with confidence into the presence of God if we place our faith in Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. And the writer goes on to demonstrate how Jesus is far greater than even the angels. Verse 4 says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
And he goes on to compare all the ways that God not only has given him a greater name, but also a greater place. He has given him his throne. And not just for a season, but for eternity. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. See, unlike the angels who serve the one who rules and reigns, Jesus is the one who will rule and reign forever. And I think it's hard for us to relate to these angels on some level because most of us don't think about angels that often, right? But in the Jewish mind, angels were often held in very high regard, the highest regard, even to the point where they were worshipped by some. And as God's messengers, you might be able to see why they were so revered. Beyond the priests and prophets, angels were the connection to this unapproachable God. And as Dr. Steve mentioned last week, I think the way Catholics relate to and pray to saints may be similar to how Jews in that day viewed angels. Again, I think it seemed more logical and more safe to find an advocate and a mediator that is more accessible and less frightening than trying to go directly to God. You know, as we finish unpacking this text, I want to circle back to the very first verse in Hebrews that we opened with here today. It says, long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And what this is saying is that from the very beginning, And using all kinds of means and methods and mouthpieces, God has been telling his people the same message that he is telling them now. His message was always to lead to this point and always to lead to this person, Jesus Christ. That was always his plan, and that plan has never changed. And this is why in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, in the Old Testament, God is taking our hand and he's pouring water over it. And he's revealing in very tangible ways who he really is. But we can't make sense of it. But in the New Testament, God is taking our other hand and he's writing out who he is. And when you realize that the two are connected, his holiness and his grace, his mystery and this marvel, his mercy and his justice. This is when you really begin to understand who God really is. I want to show you a short video that demonstrates the many times and the many ways in which God spoke to our fathers in this Old Testament period. And I believe the script comes from a sermon um, from Tim Keller. And it's going to take virtually all the characters and concepts of the Old Testament and just in three minutes show you how by God's design it was all meant to bring us to this one person. So let's watch this. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman, 
There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. You know, for the Jews, and maybe even for many of us, God has re represented to us nothing more than this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And this box represents a law-giving, fearsome, unapproachable, and a holy God. But the story doesn't end there. Fourteen centuries later, God would appear again in another box, probably similar in size as the first one, four feet long, two feet high, about two feet wide. But this box would not be overlaid with gold, nor would it contain the Ten Commandments. The box would be filled with hay, and it would contain a baby boy named Jesus. Isaiah chapter 1, in his opening prophecy, says this, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Over 700 years before Jesus is even born, the prophet Isaiah tells us that even the animals in the stable knew who was lying in that crib. But his own people did not know. God wants us to know. 
God wants us to see him for who he is. An invisible God has made himself visible through his son, Jesus Christ. But we will miss him if we put him in the wrong box. Now I'm going to close with one last story here. Um, this past Monday, uh, we closed on the sale of our home. And uh, praise God, yeah, it's, I know I've shared that as a prayer request. And um, it's been a long journey. It sat on the market for like seven months. And many of you know, for the first few months, I had just one prayer request. It was like, please pray that our house would sell. And we had already rented a much smaller place to be closer to the church. And so I needed our house to sell quickly. And, you know, after one month passed and then two, then three months passed, and we hadn't received a single offer. And I began to get anxious. You know, I was writing a rent check, and I was writing this big mortgage check for a home that I couldn't afford and I was no longer even living in. And, and I was watching, you know, our savings account just dwindle with each passing day. And, you know, in this, during this time, I remember I just started getting frustrated with God. I was, you know, and I never said this out loud, but in my heart, you know, in my most honest moments, I knew what was going on. I was telling God, I walked away from a corporate career to serve you in the ministry, become a pastor, and I think the least you could do is help me sell my house. <laughs> I felt like God owed me. But then I realized that I was relating to God as if he were this distant, unapproachable, legalistic God who only sought my obedience for his favor. And because of that, I put him in a box. And I expected him to give me something when I felt that I had earned it. And so a few months ago, my prayer changed, actually. It changed from help me to sell my house to help me to see what it is that you want me to learn, Lord. And still nothing changed, except for maybe my attitude. Another month passed, another month passed, not a single offer. But it was no longer about him knowing what I wanted from him. It was about me knowing what he wanted for me. You know, this last month uh, in in a community group, a brother shared this verse that honestly sounded like the voice of God to me. So we're going through this James study. Um, referred to this verse in Proverbs chapter 30. It said, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And, you know, in that moment I realized that God was bringing me to this place, this very sweet spot of not having too much, and not having too little, but just enough so that I might depend on him. And I realize that he's done this because he loves me, not because he doesn't. You know, and I was sharing this revelation with my family uh, when I was back in St. Louis for Thanksgiving. Around the table, we were just all sharing what we were thankful for. And my dad, he shared that, you know, he, he was praying too that I would sell my house. And right around that same time, his prayer changed too. We didn't even talk about it, to be honest, that that I would learn what God was trying to teach me. 
You know, I think it's easier to keep God at an arm's length in some ways and in a purely legalistic relationship because that way the expectations are clear, right? Sometimes it's more comfortable that way. I do for you, you do for me. Now God is under my control and I'm no longer under his. And there's a certain level of comfort and predictability in living in the strict confines of this quid pro quo kind of legalistic relationship. You do for me, I'll do for you. No one ever has to extend themselves beyond the other. It's equality at its finest. And yet, this is not the relationship that God has called us to. He's shown us that he loves us. He's given us his son. He's extended his grace to us. We can approach him with confidence. Let's pray together. Um, I think there are some of us in this room who have always related to God as the Israelites of the Old Testament. With fear and with trepidation. With a mystery that you don't understand. He might seem distant. Unapproachable. But if Jesus represents anything to the world... He represents the truth that we don't have to approach God with fear anymore. We no longer need to go through a mediator or a messenger. We can approach him with confidence. And we can by faith believe that he will show us his favor. He does love us. He is working for our good. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's take a moment and pray together and we'll respond in song and worship.